0: detriment of this COVID pandemic is we begin to dehumanize others. I know at least on campus, slur against people who don't wear masks are like rat lickers, right? Because I'd never heard that really, yeah, because they're not sanitary, they're not wearing a mask. They they probably like lick rats and they're okay with it.
1: We can dehumanize people from their sickness or like in fear of ourselves and put ourselves first and without even thinking we can do these actions. And so yes we're um, I see Greta and his mom and his dad as like villains, but also I think it's important to recognize ourselves. If we were put in that situation, what would we do?
2: If we're making this how to live document, do not treat others as unclean. As you say, Isaac, we shouldn't cast stones like that. You know, I think we we should start a hashtag, hashtag we are all rat lickers or something, or or a bumper sticker, you know. I think that's
1: we all like different rats.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think so. You know, we're all mortal, we're all frail, we're all gross, we're all we're all vectors of this disease or another disease we're all in this together. Hi, everyone. In today's recording, I will chat with Isaac and Kylie about Kafka's The Metamorphosis. I've already shared with you perhaps the most famous Kafka quote about books and literature. A book must be the axe for the frozen sea within us. He also said, I think we ought to read only the kind of books that wound and stab us. And for a discussion of one such book, let's go right into that chat with me and Kylie and Isaac. Hi, Isaac. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Here's Kylie. Hi, Kylie.
1: I'm good. How are you guys?
2: Doing great. There is some light at the end of the tunnel, then. You're looking forward to a spring yes. <laughs> of warm weather and, uh, I don't know, maybe a vaccine. Who knows what's going to happen? Seriously.
1: Stress, right.
2: <laughs> I was thinking about COVID and this, and this little story. Maybe we'll talk about that, the way in which we've all been crammed into our own little apartments because of this bodily problem. To-
1: isolation.
2: Yeah, yeah. And maybe we'll bring that up. In our chat. It is a very claustrophobic book and a very lonely book. We are suffering from similar, similar isolation. It's a very strange book. Um, maybe this is just because King Lear is in my mind. But I think if I had to choose an epigraph for this little story, it would be that moment when uh, Gloucester says to King Lear, let me kiss your hand. And then King Lear says, let me wipe it first. It smells of mortality. There's this wonderful acknowledgement that there's something wrong with the body, that the body is inherently not what we want, not something that we feel at home in, that all bodies are in a sense unclean, yeah? This will come into the discussion when we get to Camus' novel, The Plague. The first question that I want to pitch to you guys is describe in a sentence or two your general impressions of this story. Just, again, you don't have to start interpreting it. I'm not asking for anything deep here. How do you kind of react on a gut level to this story?
1: Um, I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is just like about how absurd it is that we're living and like how absurd it is to be alive we're in these bodies and sometimes we can feel trapped and then adding on top of that like we're working in a job and we like slave array for those that are around us and it's like what really has meaning is it our age is it how we look is it what we do for those around us it's crazy that we're alive and like why what are we doing here what brings purpose
2: your, your reaction echoes mine precisely. I mean, it's it's absurd that we're alive. That's something that I want to talk a little bit more about. Let's hear from Isaac. I thought it was really funny. So this is actually the fourth time that I've read this book. And I just
0: laughed. I found it so comical. And I don't, maybe that's a little... It is funny. Statistic no, it's very, of me. no, it's very funny. <laughs> but I remember the first time I read it, I, yeah, similar to what Kylie was. It was like, this is absurd. And I was almost like exhausted by the absurdity of it. But this time I just laughed. Maybe it's because Gregor doesn't laugh at his own situation either. He's kind of so <laughs> passive. I know sometimes I look at my situation. I think we've all looked at our situation, especially during this this past year with the global pandemic. You just kind of laugh because if somebody had told me this like years ago, I would have I would have laughed in their faces. It, it yes, seems yes. so absurd. But there are so many moments in life that are that are like that, right? Where it just seems so absurd that you can do little, but laugh in its face.
2: This is so wonderful. You're so right we're jumping from Tolstoy to Kafka. There's not that many years dividing them. They kind of overlap a bit. Uh, So it's not like they're living in totally different worlds. And again, we are oversimplifying it because this kind of absurdist, surreal type of writing has always existed here and there. But it, it becomes much more predominant in the 20th century, this kind of absurd, surreal, fragmentary, illogical, fantasy, grotesque, you know. So The first question that I may be slightly less interested in, but still interested in, (laughs) how's that as a teacher? I'll ask you a question I'm not interested in. Um, What has happened to literature and the world in the space between Tolstoy and Kafka? How do we explain why this story is so different? We, we, We imagine that it would be hard to get away with a story like this even a decade or two earlier. I mean, it was groundbreaking at the time, of course. What has happened in the world? or to literature that can explain this leap. And again, I'm not fishing for, I don't have the answer. It's not pinpointable to one historical event or another, but how would you describe this sudden leap into the absurd that fiction takes? This is just going to be some guessing because I'm not
0: sure what Kafka was thinking. And you're right. It is really interesting that there seems to be this, this other jump from like realism to now everything's just absurd. We're coming from something more lineal, like a, Brothers Grimm, fairy tale to now we're in Wonderland where nothing makes sense. There are no rules. I was looking at the publication date of Metamorphosis. It's 1912. This is two years before World War I. And I would know World War I had a huge effect on many literary giants of the 20th century. I wonder if, as we've been talking about Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and like other great writers who who were writing during this age of enlightenment, I wonder if many of these kind of like the posterity of these greats were, were a little dissatisfied with these logical answers, right? Enlightenment promises that through reasoning, we'll we'll kind of build this glass palace, we'll we'll be able to obtain peace, posterity. Um, There's gonna be abundance for everyone. And 40 years, 100 years, X amount of years down the road, we still still don't have this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And similar to kind of Gregor Samsa, we're just stuck in the cycle. So regardless of whatever the external circumstances are, I think maybe this is Kafka saying, we just keep running our, our heads into this wall, right? Gregor, when he first wakes up, he's like, oh, I've got to get to work. <laughs> I, I, and most of us, I think we want to be like, honey, you're a bug. You don't need to go to work now, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he's, he's so obsessed with this idea of reason and rationality. He's like, I can make it to the door. I can I can convince these people but it's not working. And, and we yeah. can see that throughout the the rest of this novella, it just doesn't work. So I wonder if this is Kafka kind of refuting this idea of rationality and reason and logic, similar to the underground man, but in, in a much more dreamlike state, right? Much more surrealistic uh, form or tone of voice. Yeah, yeah.
2: We see Kafka saying, Dostoevsky is my blood brother, you know? So he is. He, he's getting a lot of his ideas and writing style perhaps from, I mean, the underground man is slightly absurdist. You know, just as a narrator, mm-hmm. just as a personality, slightly absurdist. I like what you say, uh, Isaac, about the passage of time. Here we are now in the 20th century, and we still don't have utopia. So, And we have to go to these stupid office jobs. So li- life isn't getting better. In fact, it's getting slightly worse because I'm now a slave in this office to a boss working at a job that means nothing.
1: Agreed about the whole real of a dreamlike thing. My thought was like, yes, World War one was just around the corner. So maybe people saw the horrors in the world and they needed imaginative situations in order to see the evils of the world. I think it's much easier to see these evils or recognize these situations in ourselves when we think about them in a way that's not as something we can see in our neighbor or within ourselves. It's more of like right. this, this crazy bug that we're using. It's like almost like a metaphor. And it's easier for us to read it and understand what's happening in the book form rather than just right. like, with, like looking within ourselves or looking at the neighbor and looking at the world.
2: Okay, this is great. This takes us right into kind of my next question here. But also, let's loop back a little bit, kind of jumping all over the place, and highlight, yeah, I mean, we could talk about the way in which, I mean, my slight addition to what you two have already said would be, yeah, it's not World War One. that hasn't happened yet. But it could be this heightened industrialization or mechanization or bureaucracy, bu- modern bureaucratic life and, and industrial life. Everyone, we see Charlie Chaplin making this film, what is it called, Modern Times, um, in which he kind of paints this Kafkaesque nightmare, these people stuck in this factory, treated as Dostoevsky-esque cogs in this giant mechanized societal machine, right? So we don't even have to get to World War I to see that life is absurd and painful to live. But also, it's not just modernity. I mean, something—the point you have already made, both of you—life itself is absurd and partly senseless. You know, we know we have to live, knowing that we'll die. That's absurd. We have to uh, get up in the morning and go to work. Some of us at jobs that we know don't matter. That's absurd. We have homework, much much of which feels absurd and pointless, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, Yeah, it does. How much of how much of what we do in any given day actually matters? Some days it's very, very little. And this is absurd. So even just the I mean, even just the idea that we're mortal and vulnerable, and we know that we're mortal, this doesn't make sense. So Kafka could be a kind of modern parable about modern life, but I don't think so. I think it extends to all all existence, you know, existence itself is just what, you know, sometimes you get these moments where you're like, why does that thing exist? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Kylie, you take us to this metaphor idea, this question of metaphor. This is my next question. I prompted you for this one too. In his lecture, I think this is maybe the next logical step. In his lecture on the metamorphosis, uh, Vladimir Nabokov says this, I am very careful not to overwork the significance of symbols. For once you detach a symbol from the artistic core of the book, you lose all sense of enjoyment this is my question. I'm going to ask the question, then I'm going to keep talking for about 30 more seconds. My question is, do you think we should view Gregor's transformation as a symbol? The real question, actually, I guess, is what should we do when we are confronted with details in a story that are so clearly and palpably symbolic, that have tactile symbolic resonance? For example, some of the details that I mean in this story are, well, the bug itself, of course, this apple that gets lodged into his flesh, that's reeking of symbolic imagery, isn't it? Um, this whole idea that Gregor has to pay off his father's debt. This is a phrase that comes up over and over again in the book paying off my father's debt. I think, hmm, slightly biblical, biblical tinge to that. Uh, the woman who is wearing fur in the painting. This is asking to be interpreted symbolically, isn't it? Uh, what else? The number three. There are three men who are lodgers. Even though those three men, where have I seen groups of three before? Three men, you know, is, is this a trinity, we might ask ourselves? Or it's, it's, the book is divided into three sections. It's a kind of trimesters, you know, of this weird gestation. Other sim- symbols, uh, it's Christmas, this happens over Christmas break, that's telling. Even the apartment itself is this kind of like prison. Okay, so I've given you some ideas of symbols. I'm still talking. Oh my goodness. When will he shut up? Um, I just want to contrast this because think of the symbols that we've seen previously. This is another way in which this, this is a kind of new piece of writing. Think of the symbol that we see in King Lear between the storm and Lear's rage. That's a clear symbol. We know that the storm is equated to Lear's anger. Think of in Dickens, the spilled wine and the spilled blood. Think in Dostoevsky of the piano key. He tells us what that is a symbol for. These are clear. The, the character, the characters or the narrators explain themselves what that object that they're referring to is a symbol of. Here in this story, we have the appearance of symbols, but without any clear explanations. So this is the question I will now finally shut up. What are we meant to do? I am not. Let me clarify. Let me dictate to you how you're supposed to answer this. <laughs> what a horrible teacher. This is not an invitation to give us interpretations for these symbols. It's a question that precedes this. How are we meant to react to this invitation, this is, might be a symbol, this might be a symbol. Is this transformation a symbol of
1: anything? I think it's important to like understand that, yes, that we're given all of these symbols, but also we're not supposed to read into them too much. I see Gregor's physical change like yes physically now he is not only isolated emotionally but also he's physically isolated because he can't go out in public now he's physically limited because he can't continue to do all these human things but also i think it is he's just screaming at us trying to show us it's like physically representing his emotional state beforehand
2: well that, that's a great point i mean on one hand it's maybe too blatantly obvious what this I mean, bug I mean, transformation I mean, is a, that's a that's symbol of true. you know it's a symbol of as you say, Kylie, his alienation, his loneliness. We all feel cut off from the world. So maybe we don't need to look into this. Maybe it's kind of quite obvious.
0: Um, similar to what Kylie was saying about like not overreading or like looking too much into symbols, the symbols, like, I'm reminded of what Aristotle says about the poetics, right? And like how oftentimes plot should be the main thing. Okay. Right. I mean, I've read Kafka several times. And as you're going through the symbols, those are the first time where I was like, oh, wait, those are symbols. <laughs> but I think there's something about that. The efficacy of the story doesn't lie necessarily in like, is he a bug? Is he not a bug? What does the bug mean? But the yeah. fact that like, this can still be a good story, even if it's just about a man who turns into a bug. And I think sometimes that frustrates us. I remember in sophomore English, when we read Lord of the Flies, everybody's asking, oh, like, what does it mean? And this one kid, he raises his hand and he's like, what if it's just a story about kids killing each other? Right. Period. Full stop. And and I remember being so frustrated because it's like, no, it's got to have meaning. It's got to have symbolism. But I think sometimes like a good book can just be what it is for what it is and enjoy just like that. I think like when, when we're faced with symbols, yeah, it's really easy. And I think authors more often than not want us like dive into it, delve into it. But I think sometimes as we dive into the
2: symbolism of a piece, we can
0: often come, come out with interpretations that are more ours than the author's if that makes sense.
2: And I will just simply add on top of that, yeah, I totally agree. Remember uh, Azar Nafisi's assertion that novels are not allegories. You know, uh, Fitzgerald isn't writing The Great Gatsby to teach us anything in particular. He wants to raise certain questions, but it's not as if he's writing a sermon or an allegory. He wants to create a sensory world that you inhabit and move through and walk around in. So the best parts for me of reading this book aren't, oh, the three men are a symbol for the Trinity or that woman in the painting or in the, in the picture. Oh, she's wearing furs. This must be, and he's a bug and she's some kind of weird mammal because she's covered in fur. So what does this really mean? You know, what I really love about it is how much Gregor loves it. He climbs up onto the wall and kind of like keeps grabs it so his mom won't <laughs> take it away. And this absurdity of like, oh, I have to catch the train. I have to catch the train. It's this, It's the details of the lived experience of these people that really gets me. I mean, a related question. Why did Kafka order that there should be no illustrations of the bug? Why Why does he not want us to know what the bug looks like? He, he was very explicit. He forbade public publishers from including this on the cover. He wanted no drawing, no visual representation of this. We can't read the mind of the dead, especially a mind as, I don't know, impenetrable as Kafka's. What might this suggest, though, about his intentions?
1: I think it comes back to he doesn't want us to read too much into like physical aspect. Also, it's just like, he's living it up to our imagination. He doesn't maybe the transformation doesn't fit exactly. Like he's not a cockroach or he's not a beetle. Maybe he's not one thing. And I think it comes back to talking about like all of us are going to transform. I transform like while reading the book, Mm. I think each time, every time I read it, I get something different out of it. Like sometimes I even I'm like, I feel like the bug in this situation in my life. And so in that sense, Maybe he left it up because the bug's not meant to fit in one category, maybe. I even question sometimes, I'm like, did he transform into a bug? Has he yeah. always been a bug? It leaves it up to like, it's about the transformation and how he got and like what he learned from the experience, rather than like, this is what he looks like and he's a cockroach.
2: And it's not even whether or not he's literally a bug. It's like he would have many of the same problems. He's already alienated from his family. He's already trapped inside a mortal body. He's already trapped inside of a society that is kind of using him, you know? Yeah, it might not really matter. Is he a cockroach? Is he a dung beetle? The A charwoman calls him a dung beetle, so he must look something like a dung beetle. But weirdly, he has eyelids because he can open and close his eyes. Mm-hmm. But beetles don't have eyelids. You know, so Kafka is giving us these hints that, like, this isn't he a... Has...
1: Sorry, I was saying he still has, like, traces of his humanity left. Like he's transformed into this bug, but he can still understand everyone. Totally. He still has eyelids. He can like try to get up for work. He can climb on the chair and all the different things.
2: He has not just traces. I mean, we asked this question in Frankenstein, what is a human? Uh, If you put a human consciousness into a robot, is that a human? If you put a human consciousness into a bug, I mean, he's totally human on the inside. Yeah, his tastes have changed. He doesn't like milk anymore. He likes rotten cheese instead. But that's a minor <laughs> difference. you know. He still is a totally interior human being. Does that still count as a human being?
0: Of course, no. There are so many things. I love what Kylie had to say, especially like uh, about the ambiguity of this bug and the humanity within it. One thing that I think Kafka does really well is even though he describes this bug, he doesn't label it as like ugly or beautiful. It's just like a bug, yeah. um, which I think is just really interesting because... Um, I love what Kylie said like sometimes I feel like I'm the bug um, yeah. and I definitely think Gregor I mean not to read in too much into like is he a bug is he not but I think if if he were transformed into a bug like he states he was I definitely think that was the form that he felt either most comfortable in or was like the the best reflection of himself um, which is really interesting right when you put it in context of okay so then what is a human is it just like our outer form and appearance or um, does it really have to deal with the inner, like, desires, workings, and, like, our, like, hearts and minds? Right. Because while I think that, like, Gregor, like, he's mostly, like, a a, a human. I don't know. There are, like, there's some moments in the book where, and that was really interesting. It seems like he's also losing his humanity the more, the longer he remains as a bug. There's the chair that he sets next to the window so he can look out into the street. But yet, as days go by, he can see less and less. But he talks about, like, how he after all of a sudden it just becomes like gray fog and gray sky, there seems uh-huh. to be no difference between where the sky meets the street or anything like that, which I think is like both beautiful and sad, <laughs> sad in the fact where it's like, ah, uh, Gregor, like he's, he's losing out now, but also beautiful because like, well, maybe this is the form that Gregor always was meant to live or meant to be.
2: Well, um, this is a great point. Um, the metamorphosis isn't the thing that happened on that morning that he woke up transformed, it either has already taken place and this is just its last final stage, you know. Mm-hmm. He's always been this pupa, this this beetle pupa, and now he's just finally, you know, so the, the metamorphosis took place before page one or it's continuously taking place throughout all of the pages of the book. As you say, Isaac, he becomes interiorly less and less human. This is in the middle of section two. So just instead of like flipping and trying to find it, just listen as i read it this is the moment when the sister greta and the mother are trying to decide if they should move out all of his furniture and at first gregor is very excited about this it's like yes i could move around i could call on the ceiling there would be so much more space it'd be like bug heaven you know and then the mother says well maybe we shouldn't maybe this is kind of giving up on our son maybe he doesn't want this you know maybe this is a this is too much of an acknowledgement that he's gone And Gregor thinks this, on hearing these words of his mother's, Gregor realized that the lack of all direct human communication together with the monotonous life in the midst of the family must have confused his mind in the course of these two months because he couldn't explain to himself otherwise how he could seriously have wished for his room to be emptied out. So he notices, wait, I'm changing. Am I not a human anymore? Yeah, it starts with this, I don't like milk, I like cheese now. And then it gets, as Isaac says, more and more frighteningly alienated from what he used to be. Okay, maybe we've jumped into the middle, which is fine, but maybe we should back up and start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I'll read the first paragraph, and then I'll ask you, why isn't he more panicked? If this was me, I would just start screaming and not stop until I die or am a human again. (laughs) This would be my reaction. Why isn't Gregor more panicked? This is the first paragraph. When Gregor Zamza awoke from troubled dreams one morning, he found that he had been transformed in his bed into an enormous bug. He lay on his back, which was hard as armor, and when he lifted his head a little, he saw his belly rounded brown, partitioned by arch-like ridges, on top of which the blanket, ready to slip off altogether, was just barely perched. His numerous legs, pitifully thin in comparison to the rest of his girth, flickered helplessly before his eyes. And then there's all this wonderful stuff about how I can still make it to work, you know? (laughs) The train is leaving. I missed the first train, but I can still catch the next one. Why is he still worried about catching trains on time and getting to work?
0: One thing that I thought was really interesting and I haven't really read too much into is right when when he he's awoken from troubled dreams almost as though oh, yeah. like something about his nightmares were so visceral that like now reality is just like so much better right or I think sometimes we we think about that a lot but sometimes we get so stuck in our heads uh, these dreams these nightmares that sometimes like work I will agree that there are some moments where like, why, why am I going to work? But sometimes work, it's that pattern. It's comforting. It's a habit. It makes sense regardless if it's monotonous or not. You know what I mean? If our lives are in constant confusion and chaos, if our, if our lives were like our dreams were just like wonderland, just anything happened whenever it wanted to, regardless of how we felt, I definitely think you want to long for that stability. Um, Another thought that I had was you're right in the sense that I this metamorphosis sounded as though like it did begin beforehand, right? Mm -hmm. That's why at this like completed, if you wanted to define it like that completed transformation, uh, Gregor's like, oh, okay, Uh, time to go to work. (laughs) It finally (laughs) happened.
1: Yeah. One of the things I thought was interesting is he wakes up, but he doesn't question it. He doesn't ask, did I deserve this? Like what happened? He's just woke up one day. He's like, okay, I'm a bug. And like, (laughs) He has to keep going to work, and I think that's one of the interesting things is about modern society. It's taught us just to kind of like keep your suffering to yourself, keep your head down, go to work, call him home. Like it's mm. benefiting capitalism, if you will. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it, I feel like, um, like we know that his transformation began before he woke up, and like before the book starts, he was living in close quarters, and like his family is like putting financial stress on him. And His transformation began long before the book, and so it's just interesting that he never questions the why. So why do you guys think that he doesn't question this? He just kind of wakes up and he accepts it.
2: Yeah. I I mean, it's a great question. It's a great point. He is a traveling salesman, and we're told that he had an office job, and then he needed more money to pay off his father's debts. So he took the traveling salesman job, which he hates because he has to sleep in all these horrible places, eating crappy food, never settling down. So at home, he's alone and imposed upon. And out in the world, he has no fixed sense of friendship or connection or roots because it's one town and then another town and then another town. He's totally alienated from everyone and everything. Kylie, you make a great point about capitalism. The Marxist reading of this book is very tempting. He is a prisoner to a system. He's trapped. If he doesn't get money for his family and himself, it's, it's the end. He's totally trapped. So he is the victim of this horrible system. Um, on the other hand, so so and his, so his, um, I'll, I guess I'll finish that thought. And he he's such the system has such control over him that he can be transformed into a giant bug, and still feels allegiance to the system. I still owe the system. Punctuality. I have to show up, not just show up, but show up on time, you know? And the chief clerk even comes to the house. It's like this horrible violation. Like I'm coming into the house to knock on your bedroom door and ask you why you are late for work. It's horribly intrusive. Is it possible to think of Gregor as a hero? I don't want to twist your arms. And one reason why this is such a masterpiece is because it could have a slight Rorschach blot quality to it. You could, or That rabbit duck illusion that maybe we've talked about before. Perhaps this is a text in which if you squint with one eye, you can see a rabbit, and if you squint with another eye, you can see a duck. So when I say, is it possible that he's a hero? This is not me asserting that he is. But he says to his boss, the boss is like, you have to come. And then the door opens, and his bugness is seen by all, and they kind of react in these horrible ways. Before the chief clerk runs in horror away, Gregor tries to give this explanation. He says, I'm in a jam, but I'll work my way out of it. (laughs) So I read that and I laugh. I think first, that's so hilarious. But I also think, wait a minute. Is this the most heroic possible reaction? Is this courage? Is this nobility? Is this endurance? Is this heroism? Nothing will get me down. I think it is.
0: But I also wonder if Kafka is now trying to like get us to laugh at it. You know what I mean? he's so he's so self-sacrificing um he talks about how he opens up the door with his mouth and he goes out tries to talk and he just has this like brown fluid leaking out of him every time he tries to help a family member he goes after the clerk or anything he hurts himself and he never blames anyone else he's just like yeah it was my fault or 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 he like he he, like self-berates himself and I wonder if Kafka's trying to be like yeah. We define this as like heroism and self selflessness, but like, is that, is that really what you want?
2: Uh-huh.
0: I th- I think he's a hero, right? Even at the end, he's thinking about his family. He talks about like his final breath is like dedicated to his, his, his parents, his uh, right. sister. Um, Everything he's doing is for this, for this family. But I mean, I guess you could say like, yeah, they're, they're heroic in the, in the sense that they're trying to take care of him while he's in the state. But their care does not look anything like what Gregor gave them. You know what I
2: mean? It doesn't last very long. No, <laughs> their care for him doesn't last very long. You're right about Gregor's kindness. He starts noticing that his sister is slightly revolted by his appearance, so he hides under that sheet. It's a very heartbreaking moment. Remember this? He's like, and then he, and then he notices that next time she comes in and sees that he's under a sheet, she has a look of relief and gratitude on her face yeah so he he's constantly thinking and he wants to say one of the reasons he was working so hard was to save up money to send her to this violin this music which
0: i think school i think that's so poignant at least to me just that like brotherly admiration and like duty for a sister my heart gets warm because like i'm an older brother and so like yeah you want the best for your siblings so whenever he's like oh i'm doing this so like she she can go be like a a grade a violinist at the musical conservatory and even at the end um during like dinner scene with the three gentlemen right she's playing the violin yeah and they're not paying attention to her and gregor like comes out and he's like oh you can play in my room so that way you could feel appreciated you can feel loved you can feel deserved that's to me that's so self-sacrificing but at the same time i also think it's it is kafka trying to make a point like yeah he's that self-sacrificing that he sacrifices himself i think there there definitely needs to be like a boundary made where like not everybody needs to be like Gregor Samsa where they actually give up their lives yeah. in pursuit of like other people's happiness.
1: Absolutely agree. I would say he's almost a little bit of an anti-hero in the idea that he has all the qualities of a hero. Like he's he, like, like Isaac was saying, he is giving himself like he's, he dies for his family's benefit, but it, what's the cost? It's at his own. self. Well, so that way it makes him a little bit of an anti-hero.
2: Let's finish our conversation in a while here with this question, at, for what benefit? Because his family, yeah, I want to ask you if you think <laughs> the story has a happy ending. That's that's one of the questions. Does the story have a happy ending? Let's not get there yet. Uh, okay, so um, yeah, he wakes up. I love this. Um, It's like looking at his weird legs, you know, <laughs> and is kind of like, this always reminds me of, I don't know, this is probably neither here nor there, but is the story about how absurd it is to be trapped inside bodies just in general. And it always makes me think of, the, I've seen this twice with each of my kids. There was an actual moment, I saw it happen in real time, when I saw them, I can't remember exactly how old they were, a few months. I saw them notice that their arms were their arms, their hands were their hands. They go from making these uncontrolled gesticulations to there's a moment when They catch themselves, they catch their hand in their own field of vision, and they notice that they can control it. It's this look on their face that is like a moment of absolute existential shock. You know, I am that thing. That is me, right? And I always think of this, the writhing legs of Gregor Zamza up in the air doing this. Do we belong in bodies? We have this intuition that we are not bodies. Mm Mm-hmm. That we are something other than bodies, that we can transcend our bodies, or that we have a mind that is somehow separatable from our bodies. You know, you, if you've seen sick people, you've been around sick people. Um, my mom was sick. She died of cancer. And, you know, she said, she, you know, we, she and we said stuff about her like she's not herself or this isn't the real her or what a strange thing to say.
0: I do think part of us and part of the human experience is like finding enjoyment in this body, but also realizing this isn't the bee's knees. This isn't all that we're meant to be. However, I think in the context of the metamorphosis, one thing that I thought is really interesting as I was reading it today, uh, this is uh, Samson's death, and it might be different uh, for the translations that you've read or that other students are reading, but the last sentence of the paragraph in which he dies states, then without his willing it, His head sank down completely and his last breath flowed weakly from his nostrils. And that, that part without his willing, it struck me. I feel like Gregor, he almost gains this new appreciation for his body in the beginning. He can't control it, right? Hmm. These legs are freaking out. It's very spasmodic. His, his movements are very erratic and jerky, but later on, right? As he's exploring the space, he, he can hang from the ceiling. He's, he's kind of like Spider-Man, right? And he gains this appreciation for that. and i I just i almost kind of like this this part where then without his willing it then he dies this 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 sense that like he's able to come to grips with this new body i think there are moments in our in our as part of our human existence which are integral we we have that realization we're like man my body sucks i have so many weaknesses i have so many deformities why isn't it better but I also think this novel, this novella is trying to prompt us to think, wow, there are also really cool parts of our bodies too, right? Um, and we can either look at it as a chain, as something that's binding us to this physical sphere, or I think kind of maybe like Gregor, we can see all the cool things that our bodies can do. Now that we're not chained, but now I'm partnered with my body. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I absolutely agree. I think that I would have a hard time, like a lot of these books we're reading throughout this class are very dark and they make us question the reasoning behind our life and yes like we're all human and you asked us if in a way are we all just hideous bugs i was like maybe i think that in a way humans can be hideous creatures if we allow ourselves we're very capable of awful things i think about um the girl in the shed and like yeah. and like yes we are capable of these awful things but then we can also be capable of these great things and like help and serve each other and
2: yeah it's possible that you may not have read this yet because you may have skipped ahead to have this chat with me. But next week, we're going to be reading The Death of Ivan Ilyich. And there's this w- moment in that book, He he's he's sick, he gets sicker and sicker, and then he dies. And I wanted to pair that book with this book in the same week. They're both stories about one person who is frail and different and in a, in a way kind of ugly or broken, and how everyone else around them in their family and their society reacts. To this transformation. So they're kind of, I say there's this leap from Tolstoy to Kafka, but at the heart, they're extremely similar stories. There's this moment in the death of Ivan Ilyich where he's very sick. He's too sick to, to uh, use the chamber pot by himself. He needs help. So Gerasim, one of his servants, has to help him take his pants down, clean him, clean out the chamber pot, take his pants up. And Ivan Ilyich is so horrible. This is the ultimate humiliation. And of course, it would be. To have someone and, and the narrator's comments that like to have someone else be exposed to the stenches of your own body is a kind of profound humiliation, which is strange, isn't it? Because we all know this about each other. This isn't a surprise, you know, but we are all capable and we've all been teenagers. We've all had acne. We all know what it's like to leak brown ooze from our faces. You know what I mean? This happens to us. So. <laughs> So on one hand, we should all give each other a break, but on the other hand, we, we recognize that there's something, this is something religions have grappled with. I'm now just spinning in circles here, but there's something about the body that we don't like and that feels broken or flawed or gross. But as both of you have said, there's also something about it that we think we wouldn't want to be without it. When we think of our loved ones, we think of them as embodied, you know, we want to reunite with them as they were in their bodies. Something about the body that is so very precious. Which reminds me
0: of uh, even Gregor's mom, right? Gregor's mom doesn't give up the, uh, this idea that my human son will come back, right? In, in her mind, it's that that human image, yeah. which just connecting with what you said. Yeah, we, we really do like to embody, literally, our like love for people within that human frame.
2: Then, So then why do they start referring to him as it? It has to go. It is the problem. How do you think that, trans- that transformation, the transformation of their attitude, Occurs.
0: We look at the metamorphosis. We read it right, and we're like, "This is Gregor's story." I wonder if that's a little vain of us to think that's a little egocentric. His metamorphosis also changes the people around him. The metamorphosis isn't solely Gregor. It's also what happens to the rest of his family members. Yeah, we don't we don't get as much interior narration into the thoughts and feelings of of Gregor's mother, father, and even Greta, his sister. But I wonder if there's something to be said that like when we change and our situations change, that also affects the situations and lives of other people in in environments around us.
2: Totally. And we have to be careful to preserve. Gerasim is the only one around Ivan Ilyich who seems to not be put out by Ivan's illness. You know how annoying it is when your lo- loved one, family member, roommate is sick. You're like, oh, geez, now I have to take care of him okay, fine. You know, you kind of very begrudgingly bring them food. This is a bad way to live. I do this and it's a bad way to live. I shouldn't do it.
1: I absolutely I agree. I was thinking also um, in the beginning of the book, it starts out with like Gregor's mom and then it's and Gregor's father. And then it slowly progresses into like Mr. and Mrs. Samsa. And oh, so interesting. It's-
2: <laughs> well, this is a very interesting point that it's embedded. This transformation is embedded in the narration, in the style of telling the story, the alienation between him and his family is being enacted.
0: I was just going to say, bouncing off of Kylie's comment, which I thought was so profound. It's so easy for us to categorize life as like events. From this point to this point, I was doing it like, it's so easy for us to be so black and white when it comes to events in our lives. Yeah. Really, these events are more like processes that we go through. Uh-huh. Right. As we've talked about before, Gregor doesn't just wake up and he's like, I'm a bug now. I Right. He's been transforming into this bug and continues to become even more bug-like. Yeah. I think when it comes to like this idea of like alienation and then falling out of love with the people closest to you, falling out of those like familiar relationships, it's a process, right? Beginning. They are his parents. This is his sister towards the end. It's Mr. And Mrs. Samsa. This is the Greta is now just a caretaker. She's yeah. a little bit more than the charwoman that comes in and calls him a dung beetle. Yep. And so I think, it's, it's wise for us to look at ourselves like in this process and, and where we're at in this process instead of just stark events like this happened and this happened and this happened and they didn't connect at all.
2: There's not sense. a clear there's not a clear moment in which Greta becomes the villain. I was wondering mm-hmm. if I could if I could ask you who the villain of the story is. And maybe I would reluctantly, hesitantly, ambivalently nominate Greta to be the villain. She she starts very full of love for her her brother and brings him his favorite nasty foods, you know? But look at this moment. There's this wonderful moment when I think you can see the beginnings of her own metamorphosis from a person who loves him into a person that has closed her heart to him. Here, near the beginning of part two, it's like the fourth or fifth paragraph in part two. She's bringing him milk. He doesn't drink the milk because it smells bad to him now. And she notices this full milk bowl and the narrator says this, she picked it up at once, not with her bare hands, of course, but with a rag and carried it out. So she doesn't want to touch a bowl that he might have touched because he's unclean. She's treating him as if he's some kind of disease, some kind of sickness. And I love this narr- narrator, of course, not with her bare hands, of course. So even the narrator is kind of winking at us and saying, like, wouldn't you do the same? You wouldn't touch this bowl.'" that he maybe has brushed past with his bug body just in case it's a virus and we should talk for 30 seconds about covid is this an is this a prophecy of covid like how should we treat people who have covid who don't wear masks who are in quarantine do you know what i mean i don't know i'm just throwing that out there
0: i know i think that's so accurate I, yeah i i felt that sometimes not not necessarily with covid but like i think with other like especially like the more localized the disease is i think i can become that much more belligerent with those who are like afflicted with that, which sounds so bad, right? But I think it is just like, there's part of like this begrudging nature, like, oh, you're sick. Well, now I might get sick. How selfish is that of right, you right. even like, give me the possibility of getting sick, yeah. which is like so sad, right? Because as we've talked about this, it's not like sick people are like intentionally trying to give you the, this disease. Gregor, as we've said, he's trying to give everything, I think, but this virus or yeah. this bug transformation, curse to, to his siblings. But I think it's just very human enough to so whenever we see a threat, just try to do everything in our power to like disengage from that and be like, no, I'm not coming close. I'm taking every precaution, which I think is a little bit sad like in regular context, because I think one detriment of like this COVID pandemic is is we begin to dehumanize others, right? Yeah. Um, I know at least on campus, slur against people who don't wear masks are like rat lickers, right? Because like
2: <laughs> I'd never it, heard that
0: <laughs> really. Um is an idea that like they, yeah, because they're not sanitary. They're not wearing a mask. They, they probably like lick rats and they're okay with it. And it, it's, it's so, oh, it's like comical, but like at the same time, it's also like, oh my gosh, it's so easy for us to dehumanize those that we see as the enemy or those who mm-hmm. might have the potential to threaten our current state of stability, which is really sad, but also so relatable. Like you said, regressionally, we kind of call Greta and then the Sansa's the villains but at the same time, like, I don't think, as, as we've talked about this in earlier classes, I don't think that gives us any reason to be like, ah, oh, I'm yeah. better than the psalm says, because I think we we do that all the time.
2: Yeah, no, I wouldn't be nearly as selfless as Greta is at the beginning.
1: I absolutely agree. I was in a similar situation with a girl at work who had COVID and came back. And I wasn't trying to do it on purpose, but she brought up to, She was like, Kylie, are we okay? Like, You've been like almost avoiding me. And I, mm. I apologized. I was trying to, I was like, oh, I'm sorry, that was not at all my intention, but I think that sometimes we can dehumanize people from their sickness or like in fear of ourselves and put ourselves first. And without even mm-hmm. thinking, we can do these actions. And so, yes, we're um, I see Greta and his mom and his dad as like villains. But also, I think it's important to recognize ourselves. If we were put in that situation, what would we do?
2: Yeah. Excellent comment. Love that story about the coworker, even with uh, my mother in law lives an hour away. And it's one of the most heartbreaking things in our family for this pandemic is that she's the only grandparent around for my kids and they can't see her. So I feel like my kids have really lost something important and my kids are young. And the few times we have interacted with her and I see them hugging, I, I kind of wince and I think, oh, they, maybe they shouldn't be doing that. And, and I just, it's like, it's a horrible way to react to an act of love, a, a totally normal, very, very important bodily contact is so important and we should not if we're making this how to live document do not treat others as unclean if this pandemic was 10 times worse and it was something like ebola yeah we would have to wear suits and stuff we I wouldn't be advocating that we not take precautions but we would have to not let those necessary precautions it would be very hard but we would have to not let those necessary precautions build up permanent walls between humans you know i think we should do I mean, ratlickers that's so funny as you say, Isaac, we shouldn't cast stones like that. You know, I think we we should start a hashtag, hashtag we are all rat lickers or something, or or a bumper sticker. You know, I think that's
1: we all like different rats.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think so. You know, we're all mortal, we're all frail, we're all gross, we're all we're all vectors of this disease or another disease. We're all in this together. Okay, does this story have a happy ending? Now, as you're considering an answer, let me read, uh let me read the last. Uh, a, f- a few last sentences here. And then I want to know if you think it has a happy ending. There's no right answer, of course. It just depends on how you experience it. So he dies, the three of them go out of the apartment. They have good prospects. They have maybe this job. The father weirdly has deceitfully kind of kept this nest egg. We learn that he has this nest egg and he has not. he's not actually that much in debt. So he's kind of letting Gregor pay these debts in this horribly selfish way. So he has this nest egg they can rely on. Greta might get married. They might get this job or that job. Think they might be able to economize now that Gregor's gone. We can get a cheaper apartment. Yay. Then all three of them left the apartment together, something they hadn't done for months, and took the trolley out of the country on the edge of town. The car in which they were the only passengers was brightly lit by the warm sun. And we realize when we get to that sentence that this is the only time in the whole book in which we felt the warmth of the sun. It's such an an enclosed and claustrophobic and cold little story. Leaning back comfortably on their seats, they discussed their prospects for the future, and it proved that on closer examination, these were not at all bad, etc., etc. While they were conversing in this way, Mr. and Mrs. Zamza, looking at their daughter, who was becoming more lively all the time, realized at almost the very same moment that recently, in spite of all the cares that had made her cheeks pale, she had blossomed out into a beautiful, well-built girl. Becoming more silent and almost unconsciously communicating with each other by looks, they thought it was now time to find a good husband for her, and they took it as a com- confirmation of their new dreams and good intentions when, at the end of their ride, their daughter stood up first and stretched her young body. How do you react to this?
1: My gut reaction is to I think that, like, out of hardships and sorrow, like, if looking at Greta, like beauty can blossom, and beauty can grow. Like we can learn things from the trials that we are put through and ultimately come out as better people. But on the other hand, I'm torn because it's like, you are totally leaving behind this brother, this son of yours. You felt like he was his burden, but he gave you so many things. And the fact yeah. that they could just leave him behind so freely is sad to me. And so it's that inner battle between maybe seeing what's toxic and how we perceive life and being able to move forward and look towards what's going to bring us happiness.
0: My reaction every time is just this, this shock and especially at how uncanny it is as you were reading those lines out. And as I was following along, it's so beautifully written, right? You feel the warm sunlight, like it's you can so imagine gorgeous. this. And I love like how it's becoming spring outside. So I can like, just look out now. It's like, Oh, it's 60 degrees. That just feels so marvelous on my skin. Yeah. It's written so beautifully. And the image of Greta, right blossoming uh blooming like the flowers outside as she like spreads out into the sunshine juxtaposed with this awful horrific death of this bug that is now right they they don't even call it gregor it's it that's right he's we don't know what happened to the body the charwoman's like i just got rid of him which i i have so many qualms with that yeah the family
2: (laughs) you're right the family doesn't even want to dispose of the remains they want nothing to do with the remains
0: Yeah, it's so uncanny for me that as much as I want it to be like, yeah, this is a great uh, conclusion, I don't feel like I have that closure. I don't feel like things are are truly concluded. And I, I really like what Kylie had to say about the blossoming in the face of adversity. But I also think there's something to say that they're a little naive in the fact that they're able to enjoy this warm spring, summer day and think that the rest of their life is going to be free from tribulation that there won't be any more bug transformations coming down their way. (laughs) If that makes sense. Right. Um, I'm glad that they're hopeful, but it, it's almost like they're only hopeful because Gregor's not around because like their, their problems aren't around. Yeah. Um, It's facetious for me or anyone to say, Oh, once your problems are gone, they're never going to come back. They just put on different forms. They put on different guises. Mm. So I think, I think we should read this ending and enjoy Kafka's prose, but I think we should we should ingest it with with several grains of salt, realizing that mm, I'm not sure if the best is
2: really ahead. Or as as profoundly ironic, you know, I love your comment about what, what is ahead of them. You know, just just wait till Greta's fiance arrives and he's an inner bug, you know, this horrible man. She stretched her young body. It's a, his prose is so good. It's such a suggestive, like she's emerging out of her chrysalis, you know, like spreading her wings. But at what cost? This is a question we don't have time. We're out of time now. It's a question Kylie prompted us for. Is one person's um, healthy transformation only possible at the expense of someone else's denigration? Are scapegoats always going to be required?
1: I think it's a really hard question to answer. Yeah. Yeah. Is it worth is it worth putting someone else through the struggle in order to see someone else grow? Is she gonna go on and change the world by being some fantastic violinist? Is mm. what how was Gregor holding his family back and that he needed the sacrifice? Was it like was his death a liberating to his family? Like I think it's a it's a very hard question to answer.
2: Yeah, and we don't even need to talk about the fact that he was a bug. I mean, was it morally was it morally acceptable for Gregor Zamza to sacrifice his own life and happiness and comfort to send his sister to this conservatory? Th- this was his plan before he became a bug. So yeah. even if he hadn't become a bug, he would have sacrificed his life for her. And so she would have I th- gone on to be this violinist. Yes, Isaac.
0: I think, again, with this idea of irony, I don't know. Maybe I have to look more into this. I think we can all say as a third party disinterested Right with that omniscient view along with the narrator, that morally, yeah, it's not okay. However, how easy is it for us to do that when it comes to the sacrifices of other people? I I mean, we've talked very little about symbols and and right, the the idea of the three men being the the Trinity. I in a sense, like you can also, you can almost like see this Christ-like figure in Gregor. Yeah. He's something to be despised, like as it, as it's stated in Isaiah, you just, you don't want to be around him. However, because of his injuries, his death, and through his sacrifice, we're able to live. Really, that should prompt us to be better people. However, sometimes we're so like the Samsa family, where we just kind of disregard it, and like, I'm going on my merry way now, right? Everything's yeah. good. Life's looking great. Um, COVID's going to leave me alone. I'm going to get a new job. I'm going to get an A on my midterms. I think... It, it is right. Like we can all say morally, it's not right for someone to sacrifice themselves wholeheartedly for someone else's progress and growth. But yet that that is what has happened for us. And I think that should spur us to yeah. act better, to act kinder, especially to those people yeah. who we view as dirty or as yeah. unclean.
2: I mean, it could be right if this person does it voluntarily and says, I will have this job so that you can go to violin school. That's a, that's a noble self-sacrifice. I think where the equation starts to break down is when the person who is benefiting forgets where this benefit came from and takes it for granted and doesn't recognize it. Okay, well, you've been more than indulgent with time. Thank you very much for a great chat. This has been beyond a pleasure. Thank
1: Thank you. Thank you again
2: for coming so well prepared. And uh, have a good week. Have a good weekend. I'll see you both on Monday. See ya. Bye. Bye. Kafka wrote many short prose pieces, which are sometimes called prose poems, sometimes called parables. I wanted to read two of my favorites. The first is a bit long. I'm being rather self-indulgent here in reading it. It's about a page and a bit, so I would totally understand if all of you wanted to instantly bail out of this recording. But it's one of the most famous things he ever wrote. It's an excerpt from his novel called The Trial, but it often gets excerpted because it stands alone this little piece is called Before the Law. Before the Law sits a gatekeeper. To this gatekeeper comes a man from the country who asks to gain entry into the law, but the gatekeeper says that he cannot grant him entry at the moment. The man thinks about it, and then asks if he will be allowed to come in later on. It is possible, says the gatekeeper, but not now. At the moment, the gate to the law stands open, as always, and the gatekeeper walks to the side, So the man bends over in order to see through the gate into the inside. When the gatekeeper notices that, he laughs and says, If it tempts you so much, try it in spite of my prohibition, but take note. I am powerful, and I am only the most lowly gatekeeper. But from room to room stand gatekeepers, each more powerful than the other. I can't endure even one glimpse of the third. The man from the country has not expected such difficulties. The law should always be accessible for everyone, he thinks but as he now looks more closely at the gatekeeper in his fur coat, at his large pointed nose and his long thin black tartar's beard, he decides that it would be better to wait until he gets permission to go inside. The gatekeeper gives him a stool and allows him to sit down at the side in front of the gate. There he sits for days and years. He makes many attempts to be let in, and he wears the gatekeeper out with his requests. The gatekeeper often interrogates him briefly, questioning him about his homeland and many other things, but they are indifferent questions, the kind great men put, and at the end he always tells him once more that he cannot let him inside yet. The man, who has equipped himself with many things for his journey, spends everything, no matter how valuable, to win over the gatekeeper. The latter takes it all, but as he does so says, I am taking this only so that you do not think you have failed to do anything. During the many years the man observes the gatekeeper almost continuously. He forgets the other gatekeepers, and this one seems to him the only obstacle for entry into the law. He curses the unlucky circumstance. In the first years, thoughtlessly and out loud, later, as he grows old, he still mumbles to himself. He becomes childish, and, since in the long years studying the gatekeeper, he has come to know the fleas in his fur collar He even asks the fleas to help him persuade the gatekeeper. Finally, his eyesight grows weak, and he does not know whether things are really darker around him, or whether his eyes are merely deceiving him. But he recognizes now in the darkness an illumination which breaks inextinguishably out of the gateway to the law. Now he no longer has much time to live, Before his death he gathers in his head all his experiences of the entire time up into one question which he has not yet put to the gatekeeper. He waves to him, since he can no longer lift up his stiffening body. The gatekeeper has to bend way down to him, for the great difference has changed things to the disadvantage of the man. What do you still want to know then? asks the gatekeeper. You are insatiable. Everyone strives after the law, says the man. So how is it that in these many years, no one except me has requested entry? The gatekeeper sees that the man is already dying, and in order to reach his diminishing sense of hearing, he shouts to him, here no one else can gain entry, since this entrance was assigned only to you. I am now going to close it. And as if that wasn't already self-indulgent enough... Let me read one more tiny, tiny little parable, prose poem by Franz Kafka. This is one sentence only, and it's called Leopards in the Temple. Leopards break into the temple and drink to the dregs what is in the sacrificial pictures. This is repeated over and over again. Finally, it can be calculated in advance, and it becomes a part of the ceremony. Okay, that's it for now. Keep your eyes out for those recordings about uh, Chaplin's film, The Kid, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. Maybe try to read ahead a little bit if you have time. Most importantly, of course, just keep enjoying these readings.